There were significant impacts of both the pandemic and our response to it. The recovery efforts, I think, need to be more than public health. They need to be societal. One of the things we're doing in public health is continuing to monitor those impacts. And I'm hoping that should we ever be in this situation again, we will do more than measure what the virus is doing. We are going to have a comprehensive look at the health of the population. And we are taking advantage of some of the great relationships that we had established during COVID. For example, with education to continue to monitor and respond to the health needs, especially of children and youth who were very disproportionately impacted by the restrictions that we had put in place. I'm Peter McCulley. That's Dr. Reka Gustafson, Chief Medical Health Officer for Vancouver Island and the former Medical Health Officer for the City of Vancouver and Deputy Chief Medical Health Officer for Vancouver Coastal Health. We'll talk HIV, COVID, the toxic drug crisis and mental health when Today in BC continues. Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Gustafson. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. At what point in your life did you know that health sciences was going to be your life's work? Did your family have some influence there? Not very much, actually. I came to health sciences in my mid-20s. I was doing graduate work in statistical mechanics. I came from a family that tended to value mathematical sciences and engineering and those disciplines. I was doing graduate work in that area When I realized that wasn't really me, I needed to be around people. I think I needed to be in a service role where I affected people's lives every day and where I interacted with people a great deal. And so I took a break and I volunteered in the hospital and it felt right. So I changed my path and went to medical school. And medical school was at UBC? Yes, it was. I did all my medical training at UBC. So in your time in Vancouver, you worked primarily in communicable disease control, most notably HIV. And I understand during that time, you were able to change the testing practices for the way that HIV is diagnosed and managed. What was the problem at that time, the solution that you came up with, and the results of implementing that? So the problem at that time was that while HIV had become a highly treatable infection, with which if you diagnosed an individual early and treated them, the person could have a nearly normal life expectancy. They could participate fully in society, in relationships, have children. And despite that change, we were still diagnosing HIV, testing for HIV, as we had in the 1980s when it was a new infection with no treatment and highly stigmatized. And it wasn't by no means uh, me alone, it was really a combined effort led by the BC Excellence for HIV and AIDS and Dr. Julio Montana, who have put a case forward to government and to clinicians in British Columbia that the way we are managing HIV today fails to take advantage of the benefits of treatment. And one of the biggest parts of that was that we were diagnosing HIV late. And that was because testing for HIV was the exception. It was not the norm. We were looking for a reason to test somebody rather than a reason not to test them. And really, the reason to test somebody 
required us to ask questions of people that many people were not comfortable asking, and certainly many people were not comfortable answering. And in many ways, if you think about it, you had to answer those uncomfortable questions to get a test that cost, I think, $7 at that time, and that could change the course of your life. We gathered data on this. We looked at how many opportunities, missed opportunities for diagnosis we had in hospitals, in primary care, and then worked with our colleagues in the hospitals, in family medicine, to find ways to change practice so HIV testing becomes a routine part of care. And really, it becomes routine that as a healthcare provider, you and your patient are aware of the HIV status of that patient because it's important for their medical care. We changed how HIV is tested for from the exception to the rule. That meant that we reduced late diagnoses. We, by we, I mean the entire healthcare system in British Columbia, improved early diagnosis for HIV with the help of really dedicated clinicians and outreach teams, made sure that people were linked to treatment early. And the result was that British Columbia has sustainably reduced infection rates for HIV and improve treatment substantially. That's a pretty unique trend in Canada and really is the credit of all the care providers who, in the face of evidence, change their practice. Have other provinces followed your lead? I think there are focused efforts in other provinces. Certainly, they continue to make those efforts. I think British Columbia was in a privileged position to be able to address this in a systematic provincial level. Also, during your time in Vancouver, the toxic drug crisis was declared an emergency. And during the pandemic, overdose was the leading cause of death in most areas for those aged 19 to 39. I'm interested, though, in your opinion, what are the solutions to help people who are accessing these drugs? The toxic drug supply still remains a public health crisis. It's one of our greatest challenges, and there's no single solution. One of the things that is a priority right now is providing a safe supply of substances. People are accessing these highly toxic substances. And one of the things that happened during the pandemic, early on in the pandemic, there was an almost immediate increase in mortality as access to overdose prevention sites, naloxone, and care declined precipitously because of the restrictions that were put in place to control COVID-19. Very soon after that, we also noticed an increase in the toxicity of the drugs. Although much of the care access has recovered, we are continuing to see very, very high rates of mortality due to the very high toxicity of the drugs. So the most immediate solution that we need to pursue on the scale of the issue is ensuring that people who are using substances use substances of known composition, a known concentration, and they're not needing to take their lives in their hands. I think that is an immediate and urgent solution that we need to find a way to provide at the scale of the issue and in the context, of course, of addressing the causes and determinants of the toxic drugs crisis at the same time. So what would treatment and early prevention educational programs look like? So treatment and educational programs or prevention programs really are part of the spectrum of services that, that we really need to invest in to address the toxic drug crisis in British Columbia. So there's the immediate toxicity of the drugs that is killing people today. But problematic substance use is really rooted in the determinants of health. So adverse childhood experiences and trauma contribute significantly 
the fact that we arbitrarily criminalize some substances and not others is something that we need to address. We need to really look at the the legislative and societal framework in which some substances are criminalized and others are completely normal part of our social fabric. And there's a clear correlation between the toxicity and the harms of those substances that we criminalize. How do we address that? How do we actually make sure that from the international, federal, and provincial level, we recognize that the criminalization approach and the law enforcement approach actually aren't working? That's a really big societal change. I think we've all grown up with the notion of illegal substances. So we need to address that. Then I think we also need to recognize that substance use is part of our societal fabric. And how do we make sure that we are in at the bottom of the U-shaped curve that many people will talk about, which is that psychoactive substances that are promoted and marketed, especially at young people, but in general, are harmful to society. And so are psychoactive substances that are criminalized and illegal. And what we really need to work toward is a regulatory framework that aims at minimizing the harms of either extreme approach. Interesting. I was doing some reading ahead of our conversation and saw that you were quoted recently as saying you wanted to track how climate change is affecting people's health. Could you expand on that for me? Give me some examples of what we're talking about. Absolutely. So climate change is, of course, one of the main global crises that we're facing right now. And there are economic impacts, there are societal impacts that include health. Because we are all facing climate change, in each of our areas, we need to make sure that we monitor the impacts of climate change on the area for which we're responsible. So climate change has very direct impacts on health. If you look at 2021, the heat dome in 2021 was one of the most prominent causes of excess death in British Columbia. So in the middle of the pandemic in 2021, actually it's toxic drug crisis and the heat dome that caused the largest number of excess deaths in British Columbia. Air quality affects respiratory illnesses and cardiovascular illnesses. So there's very direct impacts of climate change on health, and we need to monitor those so that we can certainly advise people who are at acute risk. But at the same time, as with everything else in public health, we also need to look at it at a population level. Climate emergencies in general are more likely to impact those with a lower socioeconomic status who are already financially more vulnerable or structurally disadvantaged. So those are things that we need to monitor because unless we measure it, we actually aren't going to be able to monitor, mitigate, and hopefully prevent the impacts of climate change. Now, for the most part, we're increasing our social circles after a couple of years of pretty small bubbles. What can we expect from the cold and flu season this year? One of the things I've learned from Dr. Bladewick, who was the chief medical health officer of Vancouver when I started, was that Don't ever predict the flu season. (laughs) Don't try to do that. I think we're going to learn a great deal from the respiratory season that's coming up. One of the things we saw in Australia is that they actually had a relatively typical influenza season. But that doesn't mean it's mild. Influenza is a serious illness. And we actually go to a great deal of effort to reduce the harms of influenza through immunization in our population. They had a relatively early and sharp rise in influenza in the season, overall a relatively typical influenza season. How COVID-19 is going to behave this winter, 
we can't be certain because we're still learning about COVID-19. One of the things that's interesting to observe is that we had a relatively rapid emergence of new variants of concern about every three months or so until now. We actually don't have a new variant of concern that is prominent around the world right now. We actually don't know when the next increase in infections is going to happen. But what we do know about COVID, which I think is really important, is that immunization continues to protect us from serious illness and death. Obviously, it doesn't eliminate it, but the rate of serious illness and death has declined substantially. So we are not expecting a cycle of COVID infection that causes the same degree of hospitalization and death as it did in a population that was completely not immune. The other thing I would say about the respiratory season that we have to watch very carefully is that we changed how we interact with viruses and bacteria through those social restrictions that we put in place. We have young children who haven't been exposed to the same viruses that they would normally be exposed to in early life. So we have to watch very carefully, monitor respiratory infections. But at the same time, I think we are in a very different place than we were last year or two years ago. We had a new virus that was spreading rapidly in a completely naive population, whereas we are now at a stage where just about every single British Columbian has a degree of immunity to COVID-19, either from infection or from immunization or both. We are rolling out an influenza vaccination program right now. I think what I'm trying to say about that is I can't predict the respiratory season. I think it's really important that we keep in mind that there's a lot more to health than the absence of COVID. We need to make sure that we actually have those social interactions, that we return to our normal activities because they're critical to our health and well-being and monitor the respiratory season. When Today in BC continues, Dr. Reka Gustafson talks COVID-19 and mental health. From the latest community news to informative, entertaining reads for travelers and the cannabis curious, just visit your local Black Press Media community newspaper website to sign up today. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. I'm Peter McCulley. Dr. Gustafson, do you remember where you were and the circumstances when you knew that you were dealing with something more than just the regular flu in 2020? Yes. In fact, I started a new job in February 2020. I was a medical health officer in Vancouver until the end of January 2020. And then I started as deputy provincial health officer and the lead for the BC Center for Disease Control in February 2020. As a general rule, don't start a new public health job at the beginning of a pandemic. But I would say that the realization came upon all of us in stages. In late January and early February, as we were learning more and more about the virus, it became clear quite early that this was not a virus that was going to be contained. It didn't really have the characteristics of a containable virus. And so that was relatively clear. But I think how serious or severe it would become probably became more clear over time, especially as significant local outbreaks kept repeating themselves in various locations. So there was the Wuhan outbreak, then there was the Italian outbreak, then there was the New York outbreak. So as you saw the pattern repeat in a number of geographies and a number of populations, it became clear that this was going to be a significant issue globally. During the height of the pandemic, you were pretty high profile working with Dr. Bonnie Henry. I understand part of your job at that time focused on the schools. That's right. I think that was a really, really important 
body of work, and I'm so grateful to have been able to do that. Worked with the Minister of Education, the Deputy Minister of Education, and with the education sector. That was really important work. You saw around the world that there was an almost reflexive closure of schools. In many places, schools were closed for months, even well over a year. I think what worried many of us is that intervention shouldn't be implemented unless it's effective and unless it's necessary, because it has significant associated harms. So a lot of the work that we did with our public health colleagues, as well as with our colleagues in education, is to precisely identify whether schools are a significant driver of transmission, which they weren't, whether children were a particularly important risk group, which they weren't, and whether school closures are actually an effective intervention, which they weren't. In fact, often you saw that transmission increased during spring break. So it was really important to make sure that an intervention such as closure of schools doesn't take place unless it's necessary and effective. So we worked very hard to make sure that education continued. There was a holistic approach to children's wellness as well as to the wellness of staff. I think one of the things that British Columbia did well is that for the majority of the pandemic, in-person instruction remained. Some of us now have four vaccinations. What have we learned in terms of variants and surges? I know you and your colleagues are going to be keeping a close eye on things. I think one of the most important things we learned is that the primary series of vaccinations, so your first two doses plus the first booster, continue to protect you against serious illness and death. We are going to continue to monitor that, but to date, that protection is sustained. One of the things that we learned is that the virus itself has changed, and as well as immunity wanes. So vaccination doesn't protect you against infection in the long run. For people who are at particularly high risk of serious outcomes with any infection, so people who are elderly and people who have pre-existing conditions, that mean that any infection will result in serious consequences, really should get a booster that allows that, although transient but important, protection against infection. We also know that one of the things that predicts a surge is the emergence of a new variant. These variants that are emerging are actually now proving to be to us as we are understanding more and more the way coronavirus behaves. So these variants have been emerging. They have changed in their characteristics. Over time, they actually became less severe, more infectious, but less severe. So what we're learning is that there are likely to be increases and decreases in infection. There isn't yet a well-defined seasonality, so we can't necessarily say it's going to come in this month or in this season. We are learning that it's the emergence of a new variant as well as waning immunity that determine the infection rate. But one of the big things that we learned, which I think is important, is that because of that baseline immunity, we're not seeing the same level of hospitalization and death associated with COVID infection as we did in the past. What is the medical community learning about some of the long-term effects of COVID? The long-term effects of COVID are being monitored, and certainly there are people with symptoms that persist for much longer than the acute infection. And that's being monitored at this time. I would say my clinician colleagues are probably best to speak on that. We are not yet at a stage where we can say that these chronic symptoms or longer-term symptoms, by chronic, we mean more than 8 to 10 weeks. 
are necessarily different for COVID than for other infection? Are we seeing it more because we saw more infections or is there something fundamentally different about COVID? I think we're still learning about that. Certainly there are people who are experiencing long-term consequences of COVID and need the support of the medical community to manage those consequences. One of the results of the small bubbles and not having social interaction that we're used to because of COVID-19 is the emergence of mental health issues. And you've been tagged to lead a recovery response. What can you tell us about the elements of the plan and how it will be implemented? There was actually a recovery group, a group of public health physicians, as well as partners in government, with whom we worked very hard to make sure that the restrictions that were in place were appropriate for the time and place, that they were actually still necessary, they were actually still effective, and they were lifted as soon as possible, especially if they were causing harm. That was a really nuanced piece of work. It was difficult work because there was a lot of public pressure to do one thing versus another. It was not necessarily a constructive public discourse all the time. It was a really important body of work. And you will have seen that over time in British Columbia, restrictions were lifted in order to make sure that we can return to the other things that determine our health. The other thing we did in BC, and I hope to continue, is that we did the COVID Speak Survey, which actually asked British Columbians, how are they doing with their overall health? Because there's a lot more to health than the absence of COVID-19. We have found that there were significant impacts of both the pandemic and the response to the pandemic. There's been increase in mental health issues. There were increase for some populations for prescriptions of antidepressants and anxiety medications. There was an increase in alcohol consumption. The overdose crisis worsened substantially. There were significant impacts of both the pandemic and our response to it. The recovery efforts, I think, need to be more than public health. They need to be societal. One of the things we're doing in public health is continuing to monitor those impacts. And I'm hoping that should we ever be in this situation again, we will do more than measure what the virus is doing. We are going to have a comprehensive look at the health of the population. And we are taking advantage of some of the great relationships that we had established during COVID. For example, with education to continue to monitor in response to the health needs, especially of children and youth who were very disproportionately impacted by the restrictions that we had put in place. You touched on it briefly. A result of the pandemic was drinking alcohol increased across the province. And not that long ago, I ran across the new low-risk alcohol drinking guidelines. It says risk is moderate for three to six drinks a week and increasingly high beyond that. Now, the old guidelines were released about 12 years ago and suggested limiting alcohol use to 10 drinks a week for women and 15 for men. That's a pretty big difference. Has it all changed that drastically? The risk hasn't changed that drastically, but our understanding of the risk certainly has. So those guidelines were put out more than a decade ago. And since then, a great deal of evidence has been gained and summarized, and we now have a much stronger body of evidence linking alcohol to a variety of significant health outcomes. We have data that's showing that British Columbia has a high rate of consumption of alcohol, higher than many other provinces. We have data showing the health costs to the population as well as to individuals of alcohol consumption. There's a clear link between cancer and alcohol consumption. There is a link between violence, injuries, 
as well as cardiovascular disease. So we now know that alcohol has actually a very substantial contribution to the health problems that harm and kill individuals in British Columbia. With that clear link between the health consequences of alcohol now established, the guidelines needed to change and do need to change, policies need to change. And our social norms need to change in order to take something like alcohol, which is so normalized in our society. I heard the expression that I actually wrote down that alcohol has a privileged place in our society. We accept risks from alcohol that we would not accept from just about anything else in our society. And we actually expanded access to alcohol during the pandemic. So the risk hasn't changed. Our understanding has changed. We need to share that information and we need to work towards ensuring that we reduce the harms associated with alcohol consumption. How should we be dealing with COVID in these latter stages of 2022 heading into 2023? I'm thinking of mask recommendations, social gathering size, that type of thing. Those types of maneuvers, masks and social gatherings, were actually intended to be limited time measures until we got to where we were probably about six months ago. Those kind of measures have a temporizing effect. They can delay transmission, they can reduce transmission. But they're not actually effective measures at a population level for a virus that is behaving like COVID is behaving now. Exposure is essentially universal now to COVID-19. It is an easily transmissible virus. We have measures that are a lot less harmful than restricting our social activities that can reduce the harms associated with virus, which of course is vaccination. We have a highly effective vaccine that reduces serious illness and death. So I think it's really important that at this stage of the pandemic, we look back on those measures and remember what they were for. And they were really temporizing measures to get us here. And the reason I think that's really important is because there has been a bit of a social sanction that has developed, a societal norm that has developed that may not always be helpful. So I think where we are today in a highly immunized population is that we need to treat COVID-19 as we treat other respiratory infections. Wearing a mask if you have symptoms and you need to interact with other people is probably a helpful intervention. People who wish to wear masks certainly should be supported to do so. And if you have symptoms and you are sick, It's changing the societal norms associated with going to a social gathering if you are sick or visiting somebody who's vulnerable. So you don't want to do those things. But at a population level, I don't anticipate that those population level restrictions would be imposed. And I don't believe they would be effective because the virus itself has changed and our immunity has changed. So we need to treat COVID-19 in 2022 as we treat other respiratory infections. We need to be aware of the fact that there's vaccines that can protect us, that there are people who are particularly vulnerable to serious infections, and therefore we can take very sensible, meaningful measures to protect them by not having a non-essential visit when you're sick. And if you do need to be around other people when you have symptoms, then the addition of the mask can be helpful. I know you've had a a pretty busy two and a half years, which would be probably a huge understatement. Did you get a chance to take a holiday after things settled down? Were you able to travel and get a break? This summer, I went on a trip with two out of three of my kids. I went on a couple of trips with my husband, and I went on a trip with my sister. I went back to Hungary. But I would say the trip that was the most healing was a five-day trip 
with my husband and a couple of friends where we cycled up and down Haida Gwaii from Dajing Geats to Masset and back and it was absolutely beautiful and a really healing experience. I'd like to thank Dr. Reka Gustafson for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Thank you.